following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Our third reading today uh, from the prophets is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 35. Uh, It is on page 578 in the Red Bibles, if you would like to follow along. The wilderness and dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall bloom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of fearful heart, be strong, do not fear, here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found here, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So some of, you, uh, some of you know that when Tracy and I were first married, um, we lived for a couple of years in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now that, was, that was my first church job right out of undergrad, was uh, at a church plant in Las Vegas. Now, um, if you uh, are lucky enough never to have been to Las Vegas, <laughs> your picture of it is probably like lots of casinos, right? And there certainly are lots of casinos in Las Vegas. But most of them are on one single north-south road, Las Vegas Boulevard, a.k.a. the Strip, that runs down and separates the city into east and west. And the rest of the valley, all the way out to the edge of the mountains, is just filled to the brim with one big nightmare of suburban sprawl. Cookie-cutter strip malls, boring cul-de-sacs with identical houses all around them. Not a single small business or independent anything to be found anywhere. (laughs) Um, But if you drive out far enough, past all the lights and past all the sprawl, you eventually come to the desert. And now the desert in Las Vegas is mostly uh, red rock, so hills and valleys, all kind of this uh, red-orange color, canyons. And sun, there's a lot of sun. This is the one redeeming quality of the place. (laughs) Um, Tracy and I would often go out into the desert uh, outside of Las Vegas to to go hiking, to kind of get away from this city that never really felt like home to us. Um, But hiking there is nothing like hiking in the Northeast. There are no trees, 
no shade, nothing green unless you count um, cactus green, which is barely green, it barely qualifies. I think you have to buy the 128 crayon box to even get cactus green. Um, But every once in a while, and I mean like maybe once a year, the conditions are right for what's called desert bloom. A desert bloom is what happens when, in a desert climate, it rains hard enough and long enough for the water to get far down enough to the seeds that are dormant way below the dry soil. And then they germinate, and they spring up, and they produce flowers. All kinds of flowers. And when the desert is in bloom, uh, it is absolutely breathtaking. You can look up pictures online, on but it won't, be, it won't do it justice. Um, Because what was previously barren, and it's not to say that the desert doesn't have its own beauty, because it certainly does, but what was previously barren and seemingly lifeless suddenly has come alive with color and shape. It is totally transformed. And then after just a few short days, everything fades, the seeds have been scattered, and the desert goes back to normal. So having had this experience of seeing a desert in bloom, those memories of being in Las Vegas, you know, uh, 20 years ago now, immediately came back to mind for me when I read the opening lines of today's uh, Hebrew Bible reading that you just heard read a moment ago uh, from Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice... With joy and singing. Now, in, in this telling of the, of the desert bloom, it's not just that there are blossoms in the desert, but that the desert itself has come alive with rejoicing and singing. And what an incredible image of hopefulness that is, that, that a desert is personified as, as a joyful singer. I think clearly um, the prophet Isaiah had witnessed a desert bloom, had seen that, and the Lord used that memory... To, uh, to give Isaiah a word of the promise of life to come. By the way, I think and believe that God will do that for you, too. If you have uh, memories and you kind of open yourself to this sort of thing, um, the Holy Spirit can speak to you through those, those memories and experiences. Now, <clears throat> one of the ways that the prophet goes on to describe the redemption of the people is by saying that the blind will see, and the deaf will hear, and the lame will walk. And that same description is used in several of the lectionary passages this week, uh, which you may have noticed if you, if you read it. And so I want to uh, take a moment and talk about that, because that kind of language can be challenging for some people, and I want to acknowledge that, and uh, maybe tell you why that is if you're not familiar with it. Um, It's not just that we have all sort of agreed that it's not kind to categorize people so starkly and impersonally by calling them the blind and the deaf and the lame. Um, And by the way, something that I have stopped myself from doing, and if you ever catch me doing it, I would ask you to um, gently remind me of this, uh, is to stop using the word lame to me at all, pretty much, but especially to mean... Uh, an idea or event that's stupid or ill-conceived or unfortunate, as in that's so lame. Um, That kind of language is quite hurtful to people uh, with disabilities, and uh, I have tried my best to erase that from my vocabulary. See also, by the way, the word crazy, which is 
one of those kind of verbal pauses that just gets thrown in everywhere. Um, uh, but even beyond that, I think this, this kind of passage is challenging on a deeper level, which is to say that many people who have disabilities, people who are deaf or blind or who, have, uh, who are physically disabled, they don't actually want to be healed of those disabilities. <laughs> they don't uh, want those characteristics of their identity erased from them. And so to have the idea of healing from disabilities become symbolic of God's broader good work in the world can be difficult and even maybe feel demeaning to some people. And we Christians have a, a, a way of making this infinitely worse when we do things like offer prayers of healing for people who didn't ask for them, which happens a lot more often than you might think. So, I guess my point here is to to say that even if the authors of these ancient writings assumed that disabilities were always a negative thing, we should not take that as evidence that God thinks disabilities are a sign of an inherent flaw in a person. And it may be worth noting that uh, in the ancient world, uh, disabilities were much more likely to be truly marginalizing and to prevent flourishing of those who had them. So those pictures of healing, I think, likely would have been received differently at that time than they are now. Um, But even beyond that, in the modern world, we are able to work for uh, accessibility and full integration in our society in ways that were never conceived of 3,000 years ago. So perhaps the call for modern people of God is to stop praying for healing, unless someone asks for that, and to start working the courts and the boards and the councils and the housing and transportation authorities and insist on full, uh, accessible conditions everywhere in society so that that's not even a factor in someone's participation in our, our cities and in our spaces. Does that make sense? So that's kind of like a little um, bonus sermon for today. Um, but I... I I, I'm, I'm seeing Stephanie here in the room, and Stephanie is a person who has, um, th- I want to say thank you to you, you're a person who's made me aware of some of this, uh, and you've been very kind and, and gentle in the way that you've done that, and so um, my efforts always when I encounter this kind of text is to help people who maybe haven't heard that side of things to be exposed to it. So I hope that you find that useful, and um, I hope that I did it some justice as a person who does not have that experience for myself. So that being said, I think what the prophet Isaiah is uh, imagining here, and what Jesus, by the way, reappropriates later, as recorded in the gospel reading that we heard earlier in our service, is the idea, more generally speaking, that God's work is transformative. And that goes so far beyond the idea of individual physical healing. Even in this passage from Isaiah, it goes way beyond that. God's transformation is also symbolized in this passage, in verse 7, as... Uh, burning sand that shall become a pool, thirsty grounds that spring, become springs of water, and my favorite one in the passage, when the haunt of jackals shall become like a swamp. <laughs> when is a swamp better than something else? Well, when something else is a, the haunt of jackals. <laughs> um, so the picture here in this text is of the whole created order awakening to a full and vibrant life of even the most desolate places becoming fertile and beautiful. 
Now, in its original meaning, this prophetic word in Isaiah 35 was intended for the Israelites who were in exile. That's why later in the passage you get the promise that the ransomed of Yahweh, the Lord, shall return to Zion. They're out in exile, and the promise is that the ransom of the Lord shall return to Zion, to Jerusalem. That was its original meaning to original audience. But for us, of course, um, this text speaks to the arrival of Jesus the Messiah. That's why it's used during the season of Advent. Uh, And because we are, uh, as Christians, people who live in this tension between the already and the not yet, it also offers us the hope of the second coming of Jesus, when all of his work will be completed. But I wonder if um, this passage also has meaning for those of you, regardless of your religious affiliation, who find yourselves in a spiritual wilderness. I wonder if you're a person who once maybe had a faith that felt strong, but who now uh, are a person who struggles to believe, who struggles to rejoice, who struggles to sing. I wonder if this promise might be for you. And, and if you're a person who's in the, the very bottom of an experience of deconstruction, or if you um, feel like you're losing your faith, or if you're experiencing serious doubt, I know, that, I know from experience that when you go to church and there's all this singing... You, you just like singing is almost like painful uh, of an ex- as an experience for someone who's going through that. And that might describe you, but I wonder if this promise might be for you too that the ransomed of the Lord shall return to Zion. That that if you could trust in the idea that in some future you will be through the experience that you're in right now that you will have been ransomed, like saved out of this, this secondary experience of negativity and, and brought back into something that's, that's new and familiar all at the same time. And so let me um, ask us to sit with the language here just for a minute. Using that verse, the, the ransom of the Lord shall return um, as a jumping off point. The ransomed shall return. I just love the confidence of that verb. Um, the verb tense gives us this sense of assurance. By the way, Bible study trick. Print out the passage, or just if you're, if you're comfortable marking up a Bible, there's, no, there's not a sin to do that. Go ahead and do it. And... Um, when you find a word that's repeated a bunch of times in a passage, like underline it each time. Or write a square around this word and an oval around that word and a triangle over this word or some symbol to kind of show yourself what are the key words in this passage. And if you were to do that with Isaiah 35, 1 through 10, the word shall would appear how many times in these 10 verses? 24 times. That is some serious assurance. And that doesn't even count um, its cousin Will. Right, which appears two times. I just had to put in that. It's cousin Will. I like that. So 26 times you have a verb tense that has this kind of confidence in a future. The ransom of the Lord shall return to Zion. Now this confidence is coming out of the desert, out of exile. It's coming from a place where you would not expect to find it. 
So one thing you could do in your own Bible study during the season of Advent is spend some time going through the readings in the lectionary, and you can find them very easily, and looking at the verb tenses, right? I know that sounds impossibly nerdy to you, and some of you are like scientists or or medical professionals or software engineers, and you're like, I don't want to do any grammar, and that's fine, it's okay, I don't want to do any um, JavaScript, but... But everybody can do this. You should just go and find the verb tenses and, and, and wonder for yourself, what's happening here? Is this a shall moment? Is it a might moment? Is it a will it moment? For example, in the Magnificat, that beautiful reading that maybe should be the subject of the sermon every year when it comes around, but today, this year, is not. Um, Mary says, the mighty one has done great things. Do you see the difference between shall do great things and has done great things? That's a different kind of confidence in God, isn't it? And so let me ask you to do a little thought experiment for yourself. What verb tense would you use to describe God's work in your life or in the world around you today? Are you in a state of current blessing? In other words, God has done great things. Are you in a state of confident hope? God will do or shall do great things. Are you in a state of cautious hope? God might. Maybe you're in a state of despair. God apparently won't. Or maybe even God apparently can't. Because there are times when you have the confidence of Mary and times when you have the hopefulness of Isaiah But sometimes that's harder to come by. And I do want to affirm as valid all of those verb tenses. You know, the scriptures don't necessarily take us into the space of God won't or maybe God can't for today's readings. But the scriptures definitely take us there at other times. And um, my experience as a pastor talking with people who are in those times of their life is that Many people have no idea that the scriptures affirm that place, but they do. And it can be very helpful and reassuring uh, when you're in the depths of that experience to know that the psalmists were as well and some of the prophets were as well. And that does not disqualify them or you from having a meaningful and real experience with God. So I'd like to conclude today with two quick sentiments from the New Testament readings. We've been spending most of the time in the prophet Isaiah here. So I want to go to the New Testament readings from the lectionary. And the first is from the book of James, and it concerns patience. Patience is a good thing for us to be talking about right now. Um, I, I, I feel that as a community, we are in, we are, a lot of patience is being required of us, right? I mean, just, just the stuff we've talked about today, just the way the room feels right now, it, we're, we're all being asked to be patient and, and sometimes doing a great job at that and sometimes having a little more challenge with it. Here's what James says. Be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. Remember that second coming. This is a Christian text. The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it, until it receives the early and the late rain. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. I love this so much. 
seeds lying invisible in the cold ground for months and months, and the early rains come and nothing happens until the late rains come and what was invisible becomes visible. What was real all along becomes apparent. And the farmer knows. So be like the farmer. And the second is from Jesus, who uh, in the gospel reading was responding to a question from the disciples of John the Baptist. Now you may remember John the Baptist was the forerunner to Jesus' own ministry. He prepared the way of the Lord. He was the voice crying out in the wilderness. And he had his own disciples, but he was imprisoned. And so he sent some of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one? Can you imagine that? By the way, speaking of sermons that would kind of go alongside the actual sermon for today, the idea that John the Baptist, who was the, the proclaimer of the coming of the Messiah, would then have a life experience that led him to a place where he doubted that that was true anymore and sent his own disciples to talk to Jesus and ask him straight up, are you the one or not? Because... I ate a lot of locusts and honey. <laughs> I wore some very strange clothing. <laughs> People did not like me. I am now in prison, etc., etc. So he sends the disciples, uh, his disciples to Jesus. And Jesus kind of quotes these images from the prophets and sends them back to John. And then he says to the people who had been going out to see John in the wilderness, this... What did you go out in the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? (laughs) What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. (laughs) What then did you go out to see? As if to say, what were you expecting? What did you think you were signing up for? Salvation is not for people who want soft robes. Those people sit in palaces with not not a care in the world, and they're completely disconnected from the realities that we face, you and I. Salvation is for people who are ready to get dirty. To go out in the wilderness, not to sightsee and, uh, you know, mark in your little plant journal that you saw this or that read... but to get down and dirty in the wilderness and and to be in the mess and challenge of life. And so we have, in the New Testament text, these two kind of exhortations that are in tension with with each other. One is a very gentle idea, be patient. And the other is a little bit more, um, well, sturdy. (laughs) So today's sermon um, was, was titled, A Desert That Rejoices. That's from the, that's from the uh, imagery in the prophet Isaiah. But I think an alternate title for the sermon could have been, Be Patient and Get Dirty. And I think that that might actually also make a pretty good motto for the season of Advent. Be patient and get dirty. So let's pray together. God, as always, we are grateful to you for the witness of Holy Scripture. From all these collected texts, from 
times that seem so disconnected from us that it sometimes can be hard to even imagine getting anything from them, and yet we do. Thank you for your Spirit's presence with us as we read and understand the Bible. And we pray that uh, the messages in today's readings would sink in with us, that we would be affirmed in whatever experience of life we are having right now of your presence, that we would be like the farmers who are patient even through the months and months where everything seems hidden and dead. And that we would heed the call of Jesus not to seek comfort or wealth or soft robes, but rather to go right out into the wilderness and get dirty. Thank you that the incarnation of Jesus gives us a Savior who experienced all that for himself. Help us to follow in his example as we experience our own world. And may we grow closer, closer to each other and to you through the power of Jesus the Savior, the Messiah. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, um, our band is going to come back up. We're going to sing another couple songs together. And we're going to celebrate Holy Communion together as well. And so I'd invite you to come and receive this sacrament of sustenance. This sacrament of ongoing grace. Um, And you don't need to be a member of our church. Artisan's communion table is an open table. If you uh, want to have this meal with Jesus and his disciples, you are invited to come. Um, Come through the middle aisles and out through the outer aisles. Dip a piece of the bread in the juice or the wine. Remember Christ's body, which is broken for you and for me. Remember his blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And receive that as a strengthening uh, for your tired or hungry souls and selves. And be in community, communion with each other as you come as well. As always, if you don't feel ready for communion today, um, or or in a place in your life where you're choosing not to do that, you can simply stay where you are and observe or think or pray or meditate. Um, Whatever you do, I I hope that you will sense the Spirit's presence and God's love for you. The table's open. Come if you will. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.